You're listening to the CFP Podcast with your host, Sheffy, the college football writer, the source for your college football fix with picks, clicks, and conversions over kicks. Now, here's your host, Sheffy. Hello, college football fans. How does today treat you? hope it's all good. Got you feeling alive. I'm damn glad you're here with us for episode five. That's right, five casts into this renewed endeavor, something I love doing and I put a lot of time and effort into because it's our passion and it's one of our country's greatest gems. I know there's a lot of stuff going on in the world while we work to make it out stronger and better. While things try to divide us, we know one thing brings so many of us together and that's this sport that was introduced to us in 1869 out in the Garden State of New Jersey, between Rutgers University and the College of New Jersey, of course now known as Princeton of the Ivy League. And the game has evolved and come a long way since that 6-4 victory for Rutgers in front of 100 spectators. It's now played to average scores of 30-25 to in front of an average 47,000 fans. Those scores can reach upwards of 60 points per game for one team, 222 is the most ever, and regularly attended home stadiums with capacities over 70,000 seats. 22 to be exact that topped that number, and the largest crowd got as big as 156,000 at Bristol Motor Speedway a few years ago. And as the numbers continue to grow, literally, so too does its popularity, and that's why people like you and I continue to pour in precious leisure time to absorb, examine, and discuss all the goings-on among these heroic and admired young men and the great lessons they learn from their experience. And while they are not yet paid for their passions, the intangible intellect inferred from their involvement has helped pave the way for hundreds of thousands of successful scholars in athletics, academia, and civil association. But enough of that chatter. You're here for what matters. Or should I say, who matters? Our great 28 spring rankings. We've broken down teams 28 through 13 in our first four frames. Today we cracked the top 10, and dive into the programs who have realistic prospects of earning a spot in not only their conference championship, but perhaps with a lot of work and a little luck, a score in the CFP Fantastic Four. So you're in the right spot. This is the CFP Podcast, and you can find and follow a lot of today's info, plus a lot more by going to our website. It's cfpcollegefootball.com. You can also follow me, Chappie, on Twitter. I am at champion underscore lit. That's champion underscore L-I-T. Like a bonfire lit in your backyard, providing one of the sweetest smells that signals the most sensational season of the year, fall football time. It signals the time to pour yourself a preferred beverage, enjoy with friend, family, or even just sweet solitude to put on the games and enjoy this passion of our lives. So here we go, episode five. We've got numbers 12, 11, 10, and 9 in our countdown of the top teams as they entered the spring. Once again, these projections are an analytical ranking that encompasses a team's returning production, the cumulative talent and depth on their rosters as we stand currently, and their statistical efficiencies from last season. These are not yet a prediction of how teams will necessarily finish by the end of the season, but that is coming. I promise. Stay linked to our website, cfpcollegefootball.com where we will soon be releasing our post-spring Great 28 after we've had a chance to assess the spring workouts and camps and see where the movers and shakers may be going. We're ready. Let's do this. Sound the sirens, wake up the echoes, and flaunt those chains. 
It's time for more college football, y'all, starting with team number 12. Okay, team number 12. Let's go out to Seattle and bow down to the Washington Huskies. Washington, a season ago, in a very shortened Pac-12 schedule, was technically the winners of the North going 3-1, and one, with their only blemish coming in what ended up being their finale, December 5th against Stanford at home in Husky Stadium. Now, Washington may be the only team that can boast that they did not play a road game last year. All four contests were played at Husky Stadium with wins against Oregon State, Arizona, Utah, and then losing by five late against Stanford. But Washington is one of those teams that many prognosticators are putting right around their top 10. And like I said, we've got them at 12. So let's examine why the Huskies deserve to be there. Offensively, they were somewhat vanilla last year. And this is what I think is most intriguing because Dylan Morris had a respectable Redshirt freshman season, he completed 61% of his passes, 224 yards per game, only four touchdowns and three interceptions. So that four to three ratio doesn't exactly scream championships, but he did prove to be pretty effective with his feet, picking up 3.4 yards per carry, and he had two rushing touchdowns again in just four games. I think he will be a good one, but he is going to be pushed by Colorado State transfer Patrick O'Brien, who originally was at Nebraska, transferred to Colorado State, was the primary starter for the Rams last year in a season where they struggled a bit. But he does have some pretty good talent, a strong arm, and like I said, some experience. But then there's also the highest quarterback recruit in Washington Husky history, and that's saying something considering that they are dubbed by some as QBU. So. Sam Heward, who is the son of Damon Heward, the nephew of Brock Heward, both former UW quarterbacks. Sam goes 6'1", 170 pounds, so a real light, real thin frame, but he's a five-star by rivals and packs a rocket arm. And so the thought is that, you know, it's going to take him maybe a year or so to develop and to get used to that new system under John Donovan, who's now in his second year as the OC. But there were some critics who kind of complained about what Donovan didn't do or the vanilla look of that offense last year. So in the backfield, Sean McGrew comes back, 5.3 yards per carry, 57 yards per game. Kamari Pleasant will also be back for the Huskies. He averaged 4.2 yards per carry. But again, you have two running backs who neither one topped 60 yards per game. Between that pair, there were only seven touchdowns rushing again in four games. So you know, just under two a game combined for, for that combo. Now, there are some redshirt freshmen that Husky fans are really anxious to see. You've got Sam Adams, the second, JV on Sunday, and Caleb Berry all go over six foot one, right around 200 to 220 pounds. So big, thick backs, strong legs, low centers of gravity. One of those guys you should figure would emerge and maybe threaten to give McGrew and Pleasant a little bit of a run for their money. They also bring back Richard Newton, who averaged 5.3 yards per carry and 61 yards per game. He actually, I think, was the most consistent running back from a year ago. And then there's Cameron Davis as well. So a lot of bodies to choose from, but who's going to be the one that can emerge and be a traditional Washington Husky running back. A Miles Gaskin, Chris Polk, Bishop Sankey, Napoleon Kaufman type back that takes the team and, and lets the offense run through him. Wide receiver is an enigma because their best receiver from a year ago, Puka Nakua, decided to transfer. He's now at BYU. 
Ty Jones transfers and goes to Fresno State. Jordan Chin also put himself in the transfer portal. They do bring back Tyrell Bynum, who was their second best receiver. He averaged 16 yards per reception. He also carried the ball five times and averaged 14 yards per carry. So Bynum is, is a very good athlete. I think he's going to be the, the headliner there. But then they also bring in Jalen Polk, who's going to be a talent. He had a pretty impressive spring, 28 catches at Texas Tech last year, nine yards per reception and two touchdowns. They're also getting Giles Jackson from the transfer portal over from Michigan. Now, Jackson is not only a versatile wide receiver and offensive threat, but an extremely talented return specialist. He was an all-Big Ten kick returner and also returned punts last year, so that's going to be somebody who will help boost the special teams. Maybe their best threat through the air is going to be tight end Cade Otten. So he had 18 catches last year, 14 yards per catch, 64 yards a game, and three touchdowns. He's going to be a favorite of whoever is going to be playing quarterback there. Otten really made Husky fans happy when he chose to come back to Seattle for his senior season. That tight end room goes pretty deep as well. Devin Culp had a catch last year, but they are bringing in junior college transfer Quentin Moore, who goes 6'6", 250. He could be a, a very interesting mismatch as a tall tight end who can line up outside. He can line up in the slot. He can also put his hand down in the turf. But I think he's going to be a challenging guy to, to cover for linebackers. He's a four-star coming out of Independence, Kansas. On the offensive line, Washington brings back all five starters, which includes all Pac-12 left tackle Jackson Kirkland, who will be back as a redshirt senior. Luke Wattenberg also deciding to come back for his super senior season. Anchors everything in the middle at center there. Now the Huskies offensive front, I don't think got enough credit from what they did last year. So they were second in the country in sacks allowed, which is very impressive. In terms of rush offense, the Huskies were 54th nationally. So even though they didn't necessarily have a true proven back, their rush numbers were impressive, and they did a good job in protecting Dylan Morris a year ago. So a good offensive line, and that's going to really be what steadies that Husky offense until their quarterback gets even better and a couple of receivers emerge, and then one or two or maybe even three of those backs decides to elevate their game, and it'll be really interesting to see how that Washington offense develops this season. On defense, the Huskies have always been a respected defense because they've been headed by Jimmy Lake. Well, Lake is now in his second year as the head coach, and they do lose Pete Kwiatkowski, who had kind of teamed up with Jimmy Lake, running that defense for a while in Seattle under former coach Chris Peterson. Their new defensive coordinator is Bob Gregory, who kind of slides over from coaching inside linebackers. So he's got familiarity with the system. Lake trusts him to run that defense this year. They also have a very good assistant coach, Akaika Malloy, who is a former Husky grad. He coaches the, the outside linebackers slash defensive ends because they are a versatile group there. So you look up front and their main headliner is ZTF, Zion Tupuiloa Fatui. He had 13 tackles, seven tackles for loss, pass breakup, a forced fumble, and a fumble recovery. The guy creates havoc up front, and I think that he's poised for another all-pack 12 season, maybe even contending for all-American honors. They also have Tuli Latuli Gesanoa and Sam Tamani on the inside, kind of working that defensive tackle spot. Their strength, however, is at linebacker, and they're pretty deep. So Ryan Bowman, Daniel Hamuli, Edifon, Yulifoshio, Jackson Sermon. So really four guys who can play that linebacker position. Bowman and ZTF kind of also plays that outside backer spot, but Bowman is more the true outside linebacker where 
Tupeloa Fatui is more of that traditional defensive end. He's a little bit of a, uh, a bulkier guy. Haimuli is more of that outside linebacker, true outside linebacker. But they've got some reserves coming up through the pipes. Mikey Ayu, Josh Calvert, Alfonso Tupatala. All are, are going to provide a steady rotation for UW and help complement the the smaller front. And when I say smaller, I don't necessarily mean in stature, but Washington sometimes will play a two-down lineman front, a three-down lineman front. So you could really consider them more along the lines of a 3-4 style defense. They'll also put four up front, but again, what that typically entails is working one of those quote-unquote outside linebackers and putting them as a nine technique or a five technique, depending on what the front looks like for the offense. Now in the secondary, Washington had a pretty solid secondary a year ago. Even though they weren't one of the national leaders in takeaways and interceptions, they did a good job in defending the pass. Two pretty good corners in Kyler Gordon, and Trent McDuffie was all Pac-12. Brendan Radley-Hiles transfers over from Oklahoma and will most likely start as a nickel safety with Asa Turner and Alex Cook manning the, the other two safeties in that back group. Also, Julius Irvin, Jacoby Covington coming up the pipes. So... Again, depth in that position. Coaches really like what they saw from Dominique Hampton in the spring. He will add as a nickel and might even rotate as a, as a true outside corner. So a versatile guy who provides a great value to that Washington secondary. On special teams, the Huskies are steady, maybe not outstanding in terms of kickers. So Peyton Henry returns for his redshirt senior season. He's a left-footed kicker, was six of nine a year ago with a long of just 45 yards, but only attempted three field goals from beyond 40. But again, a pretty steady kicker, somebody who is reliable and consistent. Race Porter comes back as a redshirt senior punter, only 10 punts a year ago, but he had a 42 yard average and put three inside the 20 with one going over 50 yards. Now, going back to McDuffie and Giles Jackson, they could make up the Pac-12's best kick return, punt return combo. So Jackson, like I said, had a kick return for a touchdown at U of M a season ago. McDuffie, in just a limited sample size, still had an 18-yard punt return average. So those two could provide some lightning and some fireworks on the Washington special teams crew. They also have Tim Horn as their kickoff guy. He's got a pretty strong leg, so don't be surprised to see him try and make some attempts from beyond 45. There's also incoming freshman Jarrett North, who enrolled early and has a pretty strong and consistent leg. So look for him to maybe push Henry for some time, especially as they're prepping for the future. So solid special teams for Washington, a lot of experience and talent coming on that area of the of the field. Washington is kind of that enigma, and I know I use that term already, but they're flirting with top 10 talent. And if things develop offensively with the running back position, and if they can get a couple of those receivers to become even more solid downfield threats. And if a quarterback emerges, Dylan Morris or Patrick O'Brien or Sam Hewitt, if one of them takes the reins and locks in early, look for the Huskies to contend with Oregon for that Pac-12 North title. So that clash when they face off against the Ducks on November 6th in Husky Stadium, that's going to be one of the more intriguing matchups in Pac-12 play in 2021, most likely for the Pac-12 North title. So the Washington Huskies checking in at number 12 on our Great 28 Countdown. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a cyclone warning. 
That's right. Coming in at number 11 on our CFP Great 28 of Spring are the Iowa State Cyclones. And we know there are some Cyclone fans who are like, 11, are you kidding me? With all we bring back, why, how, are we outside, how are we outside the top 10? Well, keep in mind that Iowa State, as great a job as Matt Campbell has done, really bringing this program back and being more than relevant, Campbell is 7-11 and 11 in September, and he's over against the Iowa Hawkeyes, who they play in September. So that's one of the hurdles that this Cyclone program has to climb. Let's look at and digest what ISU brings back in 2021. Starting on offense, in the backfield where the Cyclones have perhaps one of the best backfields with quarterback Brock Purdy back for his senior season, and also all Big 12 and Big 12 Offensive Player of the Year, Brees Hall, who had 1,631 yards in 12 games. He averaged 5.9 per carry, 130 yards per contest, and 19 rushing touchdowns. He also caught 21 passes, two of them going for scores, which was good for third on among all pass catchers for the Cyclones last year. Purdy completed 66% of his passes for 229 yards a game, a 19-9 touchdown-to-interception ratio, so ISU fans want to see those picks limited and brought down. But Purdy was also very good with his feet, averaging 4.4 yards per rush and scampering four of them into the end zone for scores. Now, Paul has a very good backup in Jareel Brock, who was a highly touted recruit coming into Ames, as was Hall. Brock only averaged 3.5 yards per carry a year ago, but he's gotten stronger and certainly a great compliment to Hall in that backfield. Keep an eye out also this year for Eli Sanders, who is a incoming freshman, four-star recruit, now, Sanders is a little bit more of a physical back than Nwangwu was. Nwangwu was that slasher, very versatile athlete, but Sanders gives him a, a third option there to keep that backfield deep. The pass catchers for the clones, Xavier Hutchinson, Charlie Kohler, Chase Allen, Hutchinson a wide receiver, and then Kohler and Allen, both tight ends, all three made all Big 12 a season ago. Hutch had 64 catches for 12 yards a haul. 64 yards average a game and then four touchdowns. He's a tall, good target, good eye to hand concentration. So he's reliable bringing the ball in and certainly can stretch the top of that defense. Sean Shaw, Tariq Milton will round out the wide receiver group. And then there's also veteran Joe Skates, who is more or less their big play threat downfield. He averaged 22 yards per reception on six catches, two of them going for touchdowns last season. Kohler and Allen are what the coaching staff refer to as their jokers, as in like wild cards. So they use their tight ends in, in multiple ways. They can block, they can run, they can also haul in passes, and both of them with pretty good height. They each go over six foot six. They combined for 63 receptions. Kohler had 44 of them. Each of them averaged over 12 yards a catch and combined for nine touchdowns with Charlie Kohler having seven of them. So a good one-two punch. On the offensive line, the Cyclones might boast the best in not only the Big 12, but maybe even in the country. They return not only all five starters, including Colin Newell and Derek Schweiger, who were all Big 12, but they also have a couple reserves who played during injured times from their starters. So Jake Remsburg and Daryl Simmons at tackle and guard, respectively, kind of helped fill in when their predecessors went down. So some healthy reserves on that offensive front, and they were one of the best in the country. Iowa State was 38th nationally in rush offense, and yes, a good amount of that is credited to the talent of Brees Hall. 
but he had the hogs paving his way for him as well. And not only did they pave the way on the ground, but they limited the sacks against Brock Purdy. So that was good for 18th nationally in sacks allowed. And even though Purdy's athleticism helped him out at times, Purdy is a look downfield pocket passer first before he is, in my opinion, considered a dual threat. So I think he's he's stronger and sturdier in the pocket, and he certainly has the comfort of that protection from his front group. So it'll be interesting to see how much more explosive this offense is in Tom Manning's fifth year as offensive coordinator. On defense, this is where the Cyclones pride themselves, and this is kind of the foundation that Matt Campbell started and wanted to build off of with this Iowa State group. Up front, they have Will McDonald coming back after an All-Big 12 season at defensive end. Ioma Owazarike returning for a super senior season. He'll join with Isaiah Lee at the nose in the middle. So even though the Cyclones lose Jaquan Bailey and Latrell Bankston, who Bankston transferred to Houston, they still have a good amount of depth because Iowa State was one of the best teams at rotating and having a lot of active players on that defensive front. Even though they only play a three-man front, it's a 3-3-5 scheme, the amount of reps that they were able to get and rotate, they kept their guys fresh and healthy, and I think that was a big reason for their success defensively. At linebacker, again, another one of the best units in the country. Mike Rose, Jake Hummel, Orion Vance. Rose was all Big 12 with 96 tackles, 54 of them coming in the solo stoppage, 10 and a half tackles for loss. He also hurried the quarterback six times, had two pass breakups as well. So Rose is a hitter first, but he is an athlete and he can drop back into space and make it tough for backs coming out of the backfield or tight ends on those intermediate routes. Hummel is just a, a pure tackler, 77 stops from a year ago, but he also rushed the quarterback three times and got into the backfield for four and a half TFLs. They've got some depth behind them, but that group stays healthy, which we anticipate that they will, knock on wood. Rose and Hummel make two of the better linebackers at that spot in the Big 12, and Orion Vance, manning the middle, just ties the, the bow on the package. In the secondary, another good unit for the Cyclone. They do lose Lawrence White and Arnold Azuna, two safeties, but what they bring back, I think, is greater than the losses and offsets the losses of those two safeties. So at corner, Anthony Johnson and Daytron Young are the two starters out there. And then they've got their star position, which is really like a, a nickel corner, kind of that hybrid safety corner position. And that's Ashim Young, who was all Big 12 as a freshman last year and was the Big 12 defensive freshman of the year. He had 50 tackles, 35 of them on his own. He also broke up three passes and nabbed an interception. My favorite player in this group and one of my favorite players in college football is Greg Eisworth. Seems like he's been in Ames forever, but that's good news for Cyclone fans, not as good news for Big 12 opponents. Eisworth, another impressive season, 47 tackles, 31 of them solo. He had four pass breakups. He's been a two-time All-Big 12 and the guy is just a tackling machine, a hitter. He is going to do it legally, but he's going to punish you and certainly gives receivers coming over the middle and quarterbacks who are trying to throw down that seam something to second guess and to question, which plays into the favor of Iowa State's defense. Speaking of that, they didn't garner as many takeaways as they would have liked to seen, but this was a unit overall which was top 30 in defense, which included being eighth nationally against the run. So 
they can control the line of scrimmage, they'll hit you in the mouth, and then when you do try and throw deep, they do a pretty good job of covering those aerial assaults. 58th nationally in pass efficiency defense. I think we might be able to see that number increase a little bit because of the fact that the players they have returning are some of their better pass defenders. On special teams, Iowa State returns Connor Asali, who was 13 of 19 as a place kicker a season ago. Very reliable from inside the 40, not as much from outside. So we don't necessarily expect deep field goal attempts, although Eddie Ogamba has a strong leg and might be called on to try and put it through the pipes from beyond 45, maybe even into 50. They lose punter Joe Rivera, but Corey Dunn, an Australian import, was their backup last year, and coaches don't think that there will be too much difference between Rivera and Dunn in terms of production. Connor Guess returns as their long snapper, and Blake Clark comes back as their placeholder, so a lot of experience on that special teams area for Iowa State. In the return game, Greg Eisworth averaged nine yards per punt return, which is pretty impressive. They lose Nwangwu as their kick returner, but Jareel Brock was the other guy teaming with him, so we expect a little bit more of that and filling in with another one of those athletes that Iowa State seems to be getting nowadays. I'm convinced that the Cyclone special teams unit will hold their own and be just fine. So overall, Iowa State, when you look at them on paper, they do look like a top 10 team. Will they follow through? Conventional wisdom is starting to suggest that yes, they will. But again, it's really about starting hot, starting strong, and keeping that going. They can survive that September struggle that Campbell has been associated with. So it may have been a little bit of a whirlwind, but Iowa State's setting up for a very good 2021. But heading into the early parts of summer, we have the Cyclones at number 11 on our Great 28 of Spring. We are now in the top 10 of our CFP Great 28 of Spring. And at number 10, we're shipping out to Boston. Actually, no, we're going out to South Bend, Indiana, where they like to sing shipping out to Boston to kick off the great games at Notre Dame Stadium. We're talking about the Fighting Irish. And Notre Dame spent their one year as an ACC member steamrolling through it, beating teams like number one Clemson at home, Boston College on the road, number 19 North Carolina on the road, as well as traveling out and beating Pitt and Georgia Tech and taking down Florida State and Louisville at home, as well as, well, Syracuse too. But then they got to the ACC championship and lost the rematch to number three Clemson, and then still making the college football playoff they were beaten by the number one and eventual national champion, Alabama Crimson Tide. And so this year, they lose Ian Book as their quarterback, as well as Javon McKinley and Bennett Skoranek, their top two receivers from a season ago. And that's really where we start to examine the Fighting Irish heading into 2021. So at quarterback, it's a battle between Drew Pine, who will be a sophomore this year, and incoming freshman Tyler Buckner, as well as grad transfer from Wisconsin, Jack Cohn. Now, Cohn spent a few years as the man out in Madison, was injured in the preseason a year ago, pretty much sat out the majority of 2020, and Wisconsin had their COVID issues as well. But Cohn decides to take a grad transfer and come over to South Bend and essentially extend what can be a good Notre Dame offense. And he's got some help with Kyron Williams and Chris Tyree, their top two running backs. Williams averaged 5.3 yards per carry, 94 yards a game, 13 total touchdowns on the ground. He also made 35 catches for nine yards a reception. 
and put a touchdown on the board with his mitts as well. Now he's a somewhat smaller but physical back. He did have some fumble issues that need to get cleaned up. Tyree is an incredibly fast number two. He's a sophomore this year, averaged 6.8 yards per touch, 41 yards a game, and scored four times on the ground. He also made eight catches for eight yards per reception as well. Wide receiver is another question mark for the Irish. So we mentioned the losses of McKinley and Skoranek. They do bring back baby Gronk, Michael Mayer, who had 42 catches, which was tops among all freshman tight ends, and was one of the top pass-catching tight ends in the entire country last year, regardless of class. He averaged 10 yards of reception, 37 yards per game. Only two touchdowns, though, so Notre Dame is going to have to rely on him as more of a red zone threat using that big body and allowing Cone or Buckner or Pine, whomever wins the quarterback job, to be able to stick it into that big frame and know that he's going to come down with it into those diagonal stripes in the end zone. At wide receiver, Avery Davis and Braden Lindsay, along with Kevin Austin, those three will be relied upon as the juice that continues to help that Tommy Reese-led offense move down the field to balance out Williams and Tyree in the run game. So Avery Davis decided to come back for an extra senior season. He had 24 catches a year ago, which is tops among returning receivers for the Irish. 13 yards per grab, two touchdowns through the air. Braden Lindsay and Kevin Austin were two that many expected to be the athletic and statistical leaders at the wideout position. But Lindsay was dealing with injury. Kevin Austin was also dealing with injury. So didn't really get a chance to display how good these two can be. And Irish fans are hoping that a healthy 2021 is going to allow them to emerge and make things even easier for the quarterback. Up front, this is where they take their biggest hit. They lose Liam Eichenberg at left tackle. They lose Aaron Banks at left guard, Tommy Kramer at right guard, and Robert Hainsey at right tackle. It would have been easier for me to just say that they return center Jarrett Patterson, but word out of South Bend is that he's likely going to move to left tackle to protect the blind side of that new quarterback. So you've got guys like Quinn Carroll, Zeke Correll, Dylan Gibbons, and Josh Lugg who look to step in. A couple of those guys, especially Carroll and Lug, got playing time a season ago. Zeke Carell also stepped in when Patterson went down. So not completely green on that offensive front. And you also have to wonder how soon is top recruit Blake Fisher going to get into that starting lineup. 6'6", 330 pounds, a five-star out of Avon, Indiana. An in-state product for the Irish. So will he be somebody that we see play some snaps to try and mold him in or is he going to have a strong enough camp to where he might earn himself a starting spot on that front going into the opener against Florida State. Now Notre Dame was a very efficient offense in most relevant categories but where they need to clean up is in the turnover department. So we talked about fumbles being an issue. They were one of the worst teams in the country in terms of protecting the ball when it's already in their grasp. The other area that they need to clean up is in red zone scoring. So the Irish, a season ago, when they tried to put it across the goal line once they're inside the 20, they were only 102nd, 77% scoring from inside that 20-yard line going in. So an area that Notre Dame will want to improve upon, especially to help out that newer quarterback. They also were really just about average in terms of sacks allowed. Now, granted, they played some pretty impressive defenses at times, but they gave up over two sacks per game. So 
hearing that from the group that we just mentioned a few minutes ago, that was a little bit surprising. And you know that teams are definitely going to be coming after their new quarterback early and often, whomever it might be, especially knowing that there are four new starters on that offensive front. So that's another area that the Irish would like to clean up a bit offensively as they move through the course of 2021. Defensively, Notre Dame brings back a respectable amount of players. Up front, Isaiah Foskey is going to be a name that I think people are going to become even more familiar with. The dude was a a freak athlete, played a lot of special teams, and got some time as a reserve on the defensive line a year ago. Very difficult to block, got a high-end motor. I think he's somebody who could be one of the next in line of prominent defensive ends coming out of South Bend. He teams with Myron Tungavailoa Amosa. So MTA had 17 tackles, six tackles for loss, and two and a half sacks. Going back to Foskey, he had four and a half sacks and five quarterback hurries. So two guys that can create havoc on that front. They'll be teamed on the inside with Kurt Heinisch, who returns for an extra senior season. And we're going to see more of a 3-3-5 or 3-4 style of defense with new defensive coordinator Marcus Freeman who comes over from Cincinnati, a big, big hire for Notre Dame to really help offset the loss of Clark Lee, who's now the head coach at Vanderbilt. Some are even saying that Freeman is a slight step up from Lee. As well as Lee coached his defenses, Freeman has been doing that and putting up as good, if not better, stats against maybe slightly lesser competition in the AAC. But when Cincinnati played against the big boys, they certainly showed their merit. And case in point was against a very explosive Georgia offense toward the end of last season. Going into the Peach Bowl, Freeman's Cincinnati defense really stifled Daniels and Pickens and a lot of those offensive players for the dogs. At linebacker is where Notre Dame is going to be solid. Drew White, Bo Bauer are going to be two fixtures. And then Maris Lefo will play that rover position. So again, it may look like a 3-4, it might look like a 3-3-5, depending on personnel, but it looks like Bauer and White will kind of be in the middle. Shane Simon will play that weak side linebacker position, and then Lefo will kind of be more spread around the field. Lefo had 22 tackles a year ago. Drew White, 57 stops, nine tackles for loss, and then Bauer, only 26 tackles, but 17 were of the solo variety coming in more of a a reserve role, four and a half tackles for loss, three quarterback hurries. So these are linebackers that are not afraid of contact and can cover the field pretty well. In the secondary, Notre Dame has Clarence Lewis, who had a, a pretty good season a year ago, 33 tackles, but 29 were solo stops. He had seven pass breakups and was really their one of their top cover guys. Tariq Bracey will be on the other side at corner. He had three pass breakups a year ago, and then Cam Hart, an impressive year coming off the bench and playing in a reserve role. He might be the nickel corner at times. The headliner of that secondary is Kyle Hamilton, an All-American safety, and he's been living up to his high billing ever since he stepped on campus as a true freshman. 63 tackles a year ago, 51 solo stops, six pass breakups, and is one of the more impressive safeties and will probably be a first-round draft pick in the NFL should he come out after this year or should he stay an extra year. Houston Griffith returns. Griffith had 14 tackles a season ago, but 13 of them were on his own. Was an athlete that Notre Dame saw as a prized recruit. Hasn't really had a chance to live up to that billing just yet, but we could be in for a solid senior season from number three as he helps steady that secondary for the Irish. 
On special teams, Notre Dame brings back Jonathan Durer, which might sound like a good thing to some and might be a curse to others. Durer, I think, has gotten a little bit more criticism than maybe what's deserved, but he has had some notable misses that Notre Dame fans want to see erased. He was 15 of 23 kicking the ball last year between the pipes, four of nine from 40 plus though. So a majority of his misses came beyond 40 yards, which as a scholarship college kicker in Division I, you'd like to see that number increase. He did hit a long of 51 yards though, so we know that the leg is there, and it's also evident on his kickoffs, 19 of 70 kickoffs with for touchbacks. They also bring back punter Jay Bramblett, who was hitting at a 43-yard average, put 12 inside the 20, and 10 went for 50 yards or more. So look for an All-American candidacy for Bramblett heading into 2021. The re return game looks pretty good with Chris Tyree returning kickoffs. He averaged just 21 yards a return a season ago, but you would expect that number to increase this year. I'm calling that Tyree will take one back to the house and, and we'll see his star continue to shine. Returning punts is walk-on Matt Salerno, who averaged four and a half a run back last year. And we're starting to see this trend by a lot of college football teams to where they don't put a lot of emphasis on the punt return game anymore. Salerno is really one of those reliable, steady hands guys to ensure that he can make the fair catch when needed and prevent a deep bounce that would put their offense in a deeper position. Now, Notre Dame's defense looked really good last year, but two areas that kind of showed that maybe they were a tad overvalued were and first downs given up, they were 80th in the country, so they allowed teams to move down the field, but then beyond the red zone, beyond the 20-yard line, they were 89th. So not horrible numbers, but certainly something that needs to be improved, and that's where Irish fans and Brian Kelly are hoping that the new regime under Marcus Freeman can shore up those numbers even more and put that offense in a better position points-wise and field position-wise in limiting what opponents can do. So Notre Dame, always a legitimate top 10 team under Brian Kelly. That's where they look this year. We start them off at number 10 in our CFP Great 28. Running through the smoke at number nine, the Miami Hurricanes. And no, we're not blowing smoke at you. This is a legit team going into 2021. Now, as we look back at 2020, Miami won eight games, seven in the ACC, and all three of their losses came to ranked teams inside the top 21. So number one, Clemson was their first loss of the season. And then they rattled off five wins after that, only losing to North Carolina and losing bad on December 12th in the regular season finale. And then a three point loss to Oklahoma State who was ranked 21st in yet another bowl disappointment for the U. But Miami brings back a lot of key pieces that will help make them successful or at least set them up for success in 2021. And it starts of course, with quarterback Derek King. Now King announced his return right before the bowl game last year against Okie State, and then he tore his ACL. So he's been out rehabbing the entire offseason. Many think that he is going to be able to return by their opener against Alabama on September 4th. And just a side note, I don't know that it's necessarily going to be in anyone's best interest for him to return that game if he's not 100% lock solid and here's why i mean obviously it's alabama that's a game to where if they drop that game that's certainly not going to hurt their chances down the road if they rattle off and go through to the acc championship even if they're playing clemson at that point 
there's still a good chance that, I mean, they'll control their own destiny to go to the playoffs. So if Miami is contemplating, is it right to bring him back or not? I would argue that no, don't bring him back against Alabama. Let him sit that extra week. Let him see, let him help coach, let him guide his teammates and then return at home against App State the following weekend. But I digress. We look at King's numbers last year and Mr. King completed 64% of his passes for 244 yards a game. An impressive 23 touchdowns to only five interceptions. So he was a big reason why the Hurricanes finished 29th in pass efficiency offense. And that's really incredible considering the high number of drops that came from their receivers a year ago. That's one of the big concerns for this offense going into 2021 is, will this wide receiver group take that next step and not just be athletes who can burn down the field, but can they finish plays? Mike Harley led the team with 57 catches a year ago for 14 yards a reception, seven touchdowns. Mark Pope was the guy that really experienced a lot of the drops and is somebody who you could tell he was putting a lot of pressure on himself and you know he's a talented receiver, but we even saw it in the spring game a little bit that the drops were continuing for number six. So hopefully that gets fixed for Hurricane fans. He had 33 catches a year ago, only two touchdowns. They also get Charleston Rambo coming in from Oklahoma. Now Rambo has really done well this spring, looked outstanding in the spring game. He's gonna be the go-to guy you would figure for King or for one of those other freshman quarterbacks who might have to play some time maybe early on in the season or if, heaven forbid, something happens where King gets knocked out of a game for whatever reason. And the two freshmen we're talking about, Tyler Van Dyke, who coaches really like, they love his preparation, they love his game management sounds very similar to a, a Ken Dorsey type, somebody who maybe isn't the most ballyhooed recruit coming into a class, but somebody who gets the job done. He started the spring game. The other one, though, that we're talking about is Jake Garcia. Now, he looked very good, a live arm, somebody who could certainly help put up big points for this offense. Coaches have also talked about what a vocal leader he is and how his teammates, even as a, an early enrollee freshman, coming in his teammates have really listened to him and have gotten on, on board with him. So an interesting battle as we look down the line for the Hurricanes between Van Dyke and Garcia. In the backfield, a three-headed monster potentially led by Cameron Harris, who was the team's leading rusher a year ago, 58 yards per game, 5.1 yards a touch. He had 10 touchdowns on the ground and showed some explosiveness. Donald Chaney is the guy, though, that coaches really feel could be the best out of the group. And though he was out this spring, if he's healthy and if he can take that step that coaches are anticipating he will, don't be surprised to see Chaney be the guy at the end of the year who is their, their top back. Then there's Jalen Knighton, who they nicknamed Rooster. He's a guy who, who can give you a burst and he's not afraid to lower the shoulders and deliver a punch here and there, figuratively speaking, of course. And let's also keep in mind that they have Will Mallory as their tight end. Now, Mallory had 22 catches last year as the backup or as the second option behind Brevin Jordan, who was all ACC. Mallory averaged 15 yards per reception and 30 yards a game, four touchdowns for number 85. So that's going to be a target that King and then possibly Van Dyke or Garcia will like to go to. They also bring in a very promising freshman, Elijah Arroyo. From Frisco, Texas, stands 6'4", 220, a four-star tight end. However, he spent the offseason getting knee surgery, so the hope is and the anticipation is that he'll be ready to go come fall, and good things are expected from him. 
Now, the pleasant surprise this spring has been the offensive line because the O-line for the Canes last year was nothing to write home about. They were 98th in the country in sacks allowed and 117th in tackles for loss allowed. So even though the Miami running backs are a worthy group, they still found themselves behind the LOS quite often because of the shuffling and because of the uncertainty of that offensive front. Well, now going in, some are saying that this could be one of the better offensive fronts in the ACC. And they're led by Zion Nelson at left tackle, who many feel is the best of the group. They get back Nevon Donaldson, as well as Jared Williams, both decided to come back for an extra senior season. And then Delon Scafey and Williams are both competing for that right tackle position. So not only do you have quality players, but you have some who were penciled in or who were starters last year who are potentially getting beaten out for their spot, not because they're doing anything wrong, but just because that level of competitive depth has increased here at the U. So good signs up front and good signs for this offense for Miami heading into the fall. Defensively, this is where I have my biggest questions, and this is what makes me a little bit hesitant to put them in the top 10, although the metrics and the analytics suggest that Miami deserves to be there. And here's a couple reasons why. First of all, head coach Manny Diaz is calling the plays. Now, looking through some recent history, there's only two other head coaches I'm aware of who were calling defensive plays. One was Jeremy Pruitt, and we saw how ineffective that was at Tennessee. Their defenses were not very good, and he's gone now. Not because of that necessarily, but for other reasons as well. And then Justin Wilcox. Now, Wilcox has done an okay job at Cal, but in, I think, three years there, they've only made it to a bowl once, maybe twice, and it wasn't like they locked and secured their spot in a bowl. I mean, in a relatively competitive but not overly top-heavy Pac-12 conference, Cal has not been one of those teams that has consistently been flirting with you know, a second or even third spot in their own division. So my point in all this is I don't know that it's the best idea that a head coach at the college level in a Power 5 school should be calling their plays. I think it, it, it sets up to work better on offense, but defensively when the game and the rules are set up to where the defense is already at a disadvantage, when you're the head guy, you need to have somebody who you can trust who's going to call those plays and you can kind of run it amongst your staff below you. And there are four new coaches on that Miami defensive staff. So this is a big area to watch in 2021. Up front, things look good for Miami. They get DeAndre Johnson, a transfer from Tennessee, who was a high recruit coming into Knoxville. They'll team up with Zach McLeod at defensive end, but behind them, they've got Cam Williams and Jafari Harvey, who both had really impressive freshman seasons a year ago. Don't be surprised to see those latter two end up as the starters by year's end. Harvey is, is a player who coaches are really impressed by and had a, an impressive spring. Inside, they've got Nesta Jade Silvera, comes back as a senior, and then Jared Harrison Hunt, who really kind of upseated Jonathan Ford, who was the starter for a year and change. Now it appears as though number 81, Harrison Hunt, is the guy that is performing more consistently. At linebacker, it looks to be a wealth of riches for the Hurricanes, although there's some issues maybe with some discipline in terms of almost an overly aggressive group, and I know that sounds almost like an oxymoron from a defensive standpoint. At striker, that's really the, the most important position in that middle level for the Hurricanes. They bring back Gilbert Frierson, and Amari Carter actually moves up from his safety position to play that striker spot this year. Frierson had 53 tackles, nine tackles for a loss, and four pass breakups a year ago. 
And again, that striker spot is more like a strong safety than it is a true outside linebacker. But Carter, who was a captain last year, most likely will be in a leadership role again this year. He also had 53 tackles. At their outside backer spot, Keontre Smith, Avery Huff, and Wayman Steed all had pretty good springs and will rotate and kind of be on the field sometimes together, sometimes you know spelling each other for a series or so. But those three, a lot of athletic talent, and then Smith and Steed have some experience to kind of shore up Huff, who is um, quickly learning the position. In the middle, Corey Flagg and Bradley Jennings Jr. are the two guys to play that middle linebacker spot. Flag will most likely get the start. He had a good spring as well and is somebody that could be one of the top players, top linebackers in the conference in the next couple of seasons. I also like Sam Brooks. Brooks had a good latter half of the season a year ago and is a hitter, but also good closing speed and good you know, catch-up speed trailing the play. In the secondary, again, a good amount of riches for the Canes. And I know I started out by saying that the defensive side concerns me a little bit. I'm not concerned in the secondary because Al Blades, Tyreek Stevenson, who comes over from Georgia, both are really good corners. And then you team that up with Takori Couch and DJ Ivy, two others who can play. So really four players who would most likely start at about 10 of the 14 ACC schools, if not more. They've got to find time between those four, and I think that they'll do a good job of that. Blades was out this spring recovering from an injury he suffered late last season, but he should be Rook roaring and ready to go come September. Then at safety, Bubba Bolden, an all-ACC player. He transferred from USC a couple seasons ago and has really paid off dividends. A player that you're going to learn a lot about and, and should have a, a pretty good freshman season this year is Avante Williams. Now, he was the top recruit in last year's recruiting class. He was cleared eligible to play this year. He was he did not clear eligibility a season ago, but now he is. He's, he's in for the spring and had a pretty good spring to boot. And then you team that with Gervin Hall and Brian Ballum, who will come in reserve. I think that this Miami defense, as they always do, they're going to be athletic, they're going to be aggressive, but I'm still a little bit concerned about the, the direction that they're under. I have always felt that it's best to have a coordinator, and there are some younger and less experienced coaches who are coming onto the staff. Now, they might be gold mines. They might be diamonds in the rough, but you feel a lot better when you when you have names that are a little bit more established. And so it'll be interesting to see how well this, this new staff gels together under the direction of Manny Diaz, who's not only the coordinator, but also the head coach. Then on special teams, this is where Miami, I think, could boast one of the better kicking pairs in the entire country. And yeah, they graduated Javier Borregales, but they bring in his younger brother, Andres, who Javier, one of the top kickers in the country last year, said that Andres is actually better than he was at that age, maybe even better altogether. Then you've got Lou Headley, the tattooed tank, who a season ago was one of the top punters. When you look at Headley's numbers, 49 punts, a 47 yard per punt average, 14 he put inside the 20, and 20 of 49 kicks went for over 50 yards. Now, Presley Harvin from Georgia Tech won the GO award, but Headley had to have been right there uh, in second place, and, and Headley is certainly somebody who will be at the head, pun intended, of the class of punters in 2021. And then in the return game, we saw Rambo return some kicks. I think Keyshawn Smith is going to be their primary kick returner with either Rambo or Mike Harley or Mark Pope returning punts 
in some order. Don't be surprised also to see Xavier Restrepo, who is a guy that I meant to talk about on the offensive side. He has really had an impressive spring, and he's another guy to watch for. He's a redshirt freshman. I think that he's going to be somebody that you're going to see his name called a lot, and not just on offense, but also maybe on special teams. Not only as a return guy, but he was a, uh, a solid special teamer toward the end of last season. The guy just loves to play football, and he's fast, and he he's like one of those gnats who you just can't get rid of. So you love to have him if, if he's on your team, and he annoys the hell out of you if he's not on your team. So big questions for the Hurricanes this year. Can they get consistency at wide receiver, meaning very few drops? There, there were way too many the last couple seasons. That's really the big question mark. Unfortunately for Hurricane fans, we didn't really see a positive answer to that question after the spring game. Can Derek King stay healthy, and what will his production be like? And if things are not looking to go right early on, regardless of his name and regardless of, of the great young man he is, do they possibly give some more snaps to Van Dyke or Garcia prepping for the future in Coral Gables? And then also, I think at some point offensively, this offensive line and the run game is going to need to win a game. So can they do that? If the passing game is shut down, can the run game put the offense on their backs? Can the offensive line put the, the rest of the team on their backs and, and win a game physically in the trenches? Defensively, again, will Diaz's new staff be able to run things so that he can really just be a play caller and not have to micromanage? And then also, what's the maturity of this team like? We saw some moments where discipline was was not where it needed to be for Miami. And, and Diaz, I'm confident, is, is a coach that wants to shore up those areas and, and wants to be known as a disciplined team and will get them that way. But will that happen? Will they be able to put it all together to make that run in the Coastal? Miami, by a lot of people, is considered to be one of the favorites, if not the favorite, in the Coastal Division of the ACC. Can they put it all together? So Miami, our number nine team in our great 28 of spring. Okay, there's your next four, 12 through nine. Debatable? Sure. That's the potency of the college football offseason, though. Nobody can be proven completely wrong until we kick off in 130 days. 130 days. I love the sound of that. With five week zero games on August the 28th, games like Nebraska and Illinois, UCLA and Hawaii, as well as five other FBS teams, two that haven't even played a regular season contest in over a year and a half. Stay tuned, though. We'll have a lot more to come before then here on the CFP podcast, as well as our website. For a daily dose of insight, follow me on Twitter at champion underscore lit. You can also email me at cfpcollegefootball at gmail.com. Once again, this is your college football place. This is the CFP podcast. I'm Chappie, and this is what I know.